my parents uh, divorced when I was in college and that was super out of nowhere and really painful and so I think I had a lot of fear of just wanting to make sure when I got married that it was the right relationship and yeah because they'd been married for like 25 years or something so you'd think like what could go wrong at that point right I think a lot of what had stunted my desire to be in a long-term relationship was the idea of like is it going to end up like my parents the thought of going through that for myself was like I don't want to do this Mm -hmm. I don't want to go through that I don't want to have a start a family and put our kids through something like that. Just the always the what if was always there. And the what if could easily overshadow what God's actually doing sometimes. And I think that's something that even in our own our own experiences has helped us to understand each other in that way, um, which is kind of this beautiful thing God does with the, the, the brokenness of our parents. Both of us come from parents who have been divorced or and or married multiple times. Um, my dad was married twice. The second time was to my mom. And my mom is bipolar. And so growing up in, in the seventh grade, my mom was actually taken out of my home for her safety and my safety. And, um, you know, for me, I was still really wrestling that with that, I think, when we started dating and coming to grips with my relationship with my mom and also just like my relationship with God in that. You know, when I was really younger, I kind of blamed myself before I knew God. And then I realized like, that's not true. (laughs) Like, you know, it it wasn't my fault. My mom wasn't bipolar until I was, she was pregnant with me. And so um, I brought a lot of that guilt into my teenage years and I was still kind of wrestling with that when we started dating. And, And then for me going into marriage too, Dave's dad in particular's relationships have been quite dysfunctional. And so I really struggled with that in terms of Dave of like being worried and fearful that that he would bring that dysfunction into our relationship. Um, And that was my biggest fear going into our marriage. Um, And God really, he, you know, helped me see clearly that it was like, no, Dave is not, he wouldn't do that to you. Like he's not that person. Not really having people in my immediate circle who I could point to as a good example of a healthy marriage was really tough. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to kind of imagine what it could be like and and then always longing to be, if if you're watching this and have have gone through divorce with your your, your parents have gone through divorce, um, you long to be with your friends whose family seem normal to you and have a healthy family, uh, spending spending time with their their families and uh, wanting to be in that environment just because you almost want to graft yourself into to what seems normal. No. I think it's easy in divorce to feel like you're you're the product of what happened with your parents, but you learn so much of those behaviors, good and bad, and that's something we're kind of working through in premarital is like there's really good things you want to emulate from your parents and there's really hard things and I think not till you're in that like serious relationship where it does it's like we're a team there's we're not like there's no backup plan for us. I think it changes things. I remember at one point I was like, what have we done? We got married so fast and I did make the right decision. I think some of that was the emotions of it all happening so quick. But that's when I I said, is it, should we get a divorce before we go too far? I I remember, and Nate came in, held me and said, we're never gonna say that. We're never gonna have this conversation again. We are committed to one another. I will never divorce you, you will never divorce me, and we're gonna make this work, so what do you need from me? And we talked it through, but that happened in the first year of our marriage, really the first several months. And then I always knew that He gave me that security 
The thing is, is that we both didn't learn that conflict is actually good. Right. We both came, grew up in families where we didn't see conflict, and that's not healthy. Right. It's better to experience conflict and know how to work that out. Yep. So, so that can be a, a kill, Achilles oh, yeah, heel if we decide not to enter into the conflict and just keep traveling right. with in our lanes. But you had never heard your parents together. fight until right. they yeah. were getting divorced. Correct. So, and I just never heard my parents fight. Right. So that's a lot. That, yeah, that's we didn't we know how to on. fight well, uh. so we're learning. <laughs> that's even why we're here right now, I think, is having that, you know, God saying, you know, in, in my story saying, be, be one to share the hard stuff because mm -hmm. God's still good. He's still faithful. And that's the thing that's been, I think, resounding in each of our, our, our stories. And as we, we become one, it's no longer the fear of like, oh, what if this happens? Like, no, if God's in it, like, mm -hmm. it's going to be awesome. So, yeah. Amen to those videos. Ah, oh, so good to hear those stories. And um, along the way, we've been releasing the full-length uh, videos of those interviews. And this week, we uh, have released uh, J.D. and Paulina Lasky's video. Anyone catch on to that? They're now married. Anyone know J.D. and Paulina? Yeah. Okay, shout out if you were here at the wedding. Saturday. What? Yes. Was that not like the most joyful wedding? It was so joyful. Like I love at one point, like everybody walks in and it's like, welcome to JD and Paulina's wedding. And there's like this pause. And then Doug, who was officiating, just said, you can applause. And like everybody erupted in cheers. It was just so beautiful, so wonderful. Um, if you want to hear JD and Paulina's story, you can, you can go check that out. The full length of it is up there. Also, Dave and Courtney Lopez. Um, their video, Courtney Glasses, Dodgers Vans. I don't know if anyone picked up on that, but she's got some sweet Vans that are just all Dodgers logos. I happen to like that. Uh, you, can, you can see Dave and Courtney's video as well, so check that out. Well, if you didn't gather it from that, our topic tonight is divorce. Our topic tonight is divorce. And we're going to start this off right uh, by really just giving a point that's so salient, so clear, so evident, self-evident. And that is that bears and divorce are similar. Yes, you heard that right. Bears and divorce are similar. If you're thinking, where is he going with this? Uh, I'll take you there. If you're thinking, oh, I get it. Well, good for you. <laughs> Good for you. You're probably alone um, in that category. So bears and divorce are the same. And here's what I mean. So I lived in the mountains. Many of you know that. I've talked about that in the past. And, and there are uh, generally three ways people respond to the prospects of encountering a bear while in the mountains. And that is overwhelming fear, doubts about the threats, or respect and admiration. Those are the three ways that people respond. I guess it's denial. I was trying to, maybe you saw that. I was like, what was the word? Denial. <laughs> Overwhelming fear, denial of the threats, and respect and admiration. Those are the three ways that people generally can respond to the, the potential of encountering a bear while in the mountains or in the forest. And it's actually, there's, there's something similar about how we approach marriage specifically around the, the possibility of divorce. See, overwhelming fear. For, for mountain folk who lived in the mountains, bears are a norm. 
It's a rhythm of life, not so for the flatlander, as we used to call you folk, probably. I assume most of you are flatlanders. There's not many mountains nearby. And that's not derogatory. It's just a matter of reality. Like, you, probably, you live where it's flat. I'm sorry. Um, well, many of you and others who would come to the mountains would come, and the prospect of seeing a bear, encountering a bear, was this, like, yes. I can't wait. Oh, I hope I see a bear. That'd be awesome. That'd be the best. You know, maybe you were the person who was like sneaking a peanut butter and jelly sandwich opened under your friend's cot while they're camping outside. You're thinking, they're going to see a bear tonight. This is going to be great. And I'm going to see a bear tonight. This is going to be great. Denial of the threats. We'll come back to that one. But most people are excited about it. But then there are those people who are just overwhelmed by that prospect. The idea of seeing a bear is this like terrible, terrible thing to them. It's something they do not want to encounter. It's something they don't want to experience. They're the ones that tremble every step of the way from their cabin to the car at night for fear of a bear lurking in the darkness. If they see a bear, they run from the bear, like knocking open doors in the nearest building and anything to get away from it, to get in. Even if it's not their cabin and there's like some person there who's like in their underwear, they're like, what are you doing here? They're like, bear. As if it's justified. Because the fear is just so overwhelming. Now, often these are the people who have been traumatized by a bad experience with animals, maybe a dog or something. And so bears are just like too much. It's just too much. Or they're the people who what they know of bears comes from a movie or like a documentary or something, probably something about like grizzly bear attacks or something like that. And like the mountains around here, we don't have grizzly bears. We have black bears. They're very different. Also, attacks are very rare. It's, it doesn't, that doesn't happen very often unless you're throwing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich under your friend's cot. Don't do that. Or putting on like, you know, very, very lip balm and then sleeping outside. Wake up to like a bear going, and you're like, oh. Anyway, it's happened. <laughs> it's happened. So maybe their view of bears, or your view of bears, and human interactions is skewed by these things. It's so skewed, it's so messed up that people who are overwhelmed with fear of the bears, it leaves them paralyzed by the potential of the encounter. And so they self-select out. They never go to the mountains or never go out into the woods at night to see the stars because of bears. And that fear and misconception robs them of the awe and joy of all that the mountains have to offer, including getting to see a bear, because bears are really cool. And that fear undermines their experience. If you're making the connection here, the same is true in marriage. My guess is there's a lot of people here in the room whose parents have been divorced or have a rocky marriage, and, and you maybe have or still are working through that pain, or, or you're operating with this reality that you just can't reconcile. Maybe, maybe your only view, your only perspective on what marriage is, is this twisted, unhealthy one. And so you have no other like hands-on, feet-on-the-ground example of the marriage relationship upon which to base your prospects or hopes on. So why wouldn't you be afraid of it? The prospects of marriage are scary to you, and that's okay. That makes sense. 
That will certainly contribute to the complexion of your journey to and through marriage. And as you heard from JD and Paulina's story, from Brian and Carmel, from Courtney and Dave, you are not alone in some of the struggles and fear and whatever else that trauma of having your parents' marriage dissolve or be unhappy, be caustic. That's traumatic. And it will color things for you. And that's okay. With such a background fear of having the same thing happen to you, fear of what could go wrong because you've seen it and been hurt so deeply by it. That fear is reasonable. It's reasonable. But staying in that fear probably isn't beneficial. There have been sermons in the past where we've talked about how to deal with pain and how to work through hard things in life. And being a child of divorced parents or parents whose marriage is far from happy falls in that category. And I want to tell you there's hope. There is healing. And if you need help on that journey, come talk with us. If, if you're looking for counseling, if you think that'd be helpful, come talk with us. Because as those in the video attest to, being people who come from families of broken relationships, it is hard and it's had an impact on their journey, and some of them needed help to let that fear and the realities line up. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of how this works in the moment. That doesn't go well. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> let the fear... Don't let the fear overwhelm the realities. Don't let the fear color like rose-colored glasses what was actually there, and all you see is red. But actually, this world and marriage is full of so many colors. It's not just red. You might need help pulling those off so that you can see it as it really is. We got there. All right. The thing about uh, the people you saw in this video, it hasn't robbed them of a healthy marriage. If, if divorced parents or troubled marriage between your parents is a part of your story, it doesn't have to keep you from the awe and joy of a healthy marriage either. If you need help, come talk with us. So, there are those who respond to the prospect of bears with overwhelming fear. And there are those that operate in complete denial of the threats. Like complete denial of the threats of a bear and denial or ignorance of their own vulnerability is ultimately what it is. Those who don't take bears seriously enough, and they should because bears are super strong. <laughs> they're super strong, and they're curious, and they can be dangerous. They can be dangerous. To ignore that or act as though they are no big deal could easily lead to a bad experience. Up at camp, there was um, this one summer where... Uh, some guys who were on staff. It was their first week of camp, and we'd gone through orientation. We talked to them about the threats of bears. Simple things, like, you know, in your cabin, like, don't leave food out in the open. Put it in secure places. It's probably best to close the doors of your cabin and close the windows when you're not around, especially if you have food in your cabin. You know, these are kind of simple things. Like, once you hear it, you're probably like, okay, yeah, I get it. And, well, these guys are great guys. I love them. Um, I really deeply love them. But they had to learn the lesson the hard way. 
They operated in denial of the threats. And so this one guy in particular, his name is Brian Darby. I really love Brian Darby. Uh, Darby was like intent on that summer he was going to get jacked. And so he, he wrangled up all the other guys in the cabin. He's like, they were lifeguards. And he's like, look, every afternoon after our shift before dinner, we're going to the weight room and we are going to bulk up this summer. It's going to be great. So, of course, you, there's some certain paraphernalia that you have to have for such things, apparently, um, such as like creatine powder. And of course, creatine powder, like the chocolate, whatever, I don't know, it doesn't come in like a little jug. It's like a bucket. And it costs like $85. You know what I'm talking about? And he had like this drawer that he would slide open and it was like all the protein bars he needed for the summer. And Darby like dropped so much money on this. He was pumped on it. He was like, yeah, guys, it's going to be great. Like, this is awesome. And so this first week, they come back from the lake. They go to the gym. They get pumped, you know, and then they go to the cabin and Darby's like got the bucket open and they all have like the little shaker cups, you know, and he's like dishing it out to each guy. He's like, we're going to the dining hall. We're going to drink our protein. It's going to be great. And they do all that and they even like leave the drawer open and then they all book it to the dining hall and leave the door wide open. Bucket of creatine powder, lid off, drawer of protein bars, pulled straight out. Some of them even unwrapped, half eaten. I don't know why, but they did. Can you guess what happened? (laughs) They were gone like 30 minutes, maybe. Of course, some bear, curious, wanders in, is like, oh yeah, chocolate, my favorite, and goes to town. Just goes to town, eats the entire bucket, scarfs almost all of the protein bars, destroys their cabin. Like, just wrecks it. Just totally, totally wrecked it. They were in total denial of the threats. And it cost them. They didn't take the bear seriously enough, and so their cabin was a disaster. Like, most of their clothes were ruined. Thankfully, they're lifeguards, so they're like, ah, I got my shorts, so I guess I'm going to be okay this summer. (laughs) Darby's out, like, 50 bucks worth of, like, creatine powder. And, of course, like, there's some, like, super jacked bear walking around camp, you know, just like, (laughs) like, like, and now everybody's really in danger. (laughs) Like, it's like a super bulked up bear. They didn't take the threat seriously. They didn't take it seriously. And it cost them. And thankfully, it didn't cost them in any physical way, but it cost them. In marriage, there are those who don't take the covenant seriously enough. Like, and that's whether right now most of you are not married. Some of you are. Some of you who are watching online are. And so taking the covenant seriously isn't just once you're in marriage, but it's even as you lead up to marriage. Are you diligent in dating? Are you diligent in marriage being humble about your own vulnerability and failures or potential failures? We will spare ourselves and our spouses a lot of heartache if we recognize and come to grips with how big and important and demanding a healthy marriage covenant is. To recognize that we are, we are not above or better than those couples, perhaps even your parents, who have had missteps in marriage or even been divorced. You're not above them. You're not better than them. You're just as vulnerable as they are. Those that are ignorant or they ignore 
the threats to a happy marriage may miss out on one. To be ignorant or indifferent may end up costing you your marriage. Or if you stay together, it may rob you of a happy marriage. I don't think any of you want that. Nobody goes into marriage thinking, yeah, whatever, you know. If it's just okay, I'm fine with that. Like you go into it hopeful. And it takes diligence and intentionality to continue in that hope, to hold on to that hope. It's just like our walk with Jesus. If we're not diligent about it, if we're not aware of the threats that can undermine that hope, that can rob us of it, that can undermine our walk, our relationship, we'll fall prey to them. And the same is true of a marriage. You can come into it with all the love, all the romance, all the intentionality, all the grand ideas of what's ahead of you. But if you don't cherish them, if you don't care for them, if you don't take it seriously, you'll never have them realized. Because the threats are real. And you got to take them as real and account for them. So, there's a final way here, right? Respect and admiration. With bears, to respect the threat of a bear, uh, the threat that a bear represents, and to respond to those potentialities with proactiveness. That's what we're called to in bears. That's what I would call people to. At camp, one of my jobs was to manage and oversee the night watch team. And uh, that's the people who patrolled the camp at night. It was kind of like a security detail. Uh, and they would undoubtedly have numerous bear encounters. And so I would train them. I would give them understanding and actions that would serve them well in those encounters. I would help set up uh, their expectations for what it would be like. And with good training, it relieved them of ignorance. And it called them to a higher responsibility and helped them put any fears they had in the right place. It opened them up to actually enjoy their encounters with the bears while not putting themselves or others in harm's way. The training did not alleviate their fears completely, those who were afraid. Many were still terrified their first night of night watch patrol, terrified walking out. Those who were afraid, it didn't go away that first night. But the training gave them expectations and hope that they would handle that encounter well. And the same was true of those that tended towards denial of the threats. It made them aware of their vulnerabilities and the threats they should consider when interacting with a bear. It also didn't account for everything that could happen. It didn't account for all of it. And they would have to use the concepts and ideas that they were given in training and adapt them to each specific situation. Ultimately, it taught them just to respect the bears, to honor the threat they represent, while at the same time enabling them to enjoy the unique pleasures of mountain life, like going out to look at the stars at night, unafraid, enraptured by the beauty of it. And if a bear wanders by, being excited about it, but taking it seriously and doing the proper thing so it isn't a threat, it isn't a harm to you. An admiration of the marriage covenant and respect for the threats that can undermine it equips us to the best of our, to, to enjoy it to the best of our ability. To recognize our vulnerability and respond to it accordingly, accordingly 
is to respect the sanctity of the marriage covenant. If you don't respect the intensity and the demands of this covenant, you may never enter marriage for fear of it. Or you may fall victim to ignorance and fulfill the fear of a bad one. So, bears and divorce are similar. Our topic tonight is divorce, right? Most of you in here probably aren't divorced because most of you probably haven't been married. Not probably, I know it actually. Do you remember, those of you who are here, Brian Howard did like an impromptu like, raise your hand, woo if you're like single, if you're dating somebody, if you're married, and it was like very clear, like okay, there's like the three couples who are married that are in the room. And I know there's many more who join us online, and I know there's many more amongst us, maybe they just weren't all here that night, but most of us are single. And so to talk about divorce is a very future-oriented thing, and so our my focus for the rest of this time is really going to be on answering this one question. How do you respect the covenant and thrive in marriage so divorce or despair won't win out? That's the question we're going to try and answer tonight. And I hope it equips you to alleviate some fears and equips you to recognize the threats so that on your way to marriage and once you get there, you have the tools you need to protect it. And make it beautiful, thriving, and to get to enjoy it for all it's worth. So in thinking of how to answer this question, I was drawn to the outline for the last wedding I performed. And so I'm going to read through my officiating notes and then wrap it up with a list of helpful strategies for a a resilient and fruitful marriage. So welcome to the wedding. And this is how I welcome you and we'll start the wedding right here. Marriage is celebrated on, I can't do that voice for very long. Marriage is celebrated by the scriptures and is held in high regard by the God who created it. The marriage covenant was instituted by God and therefore it is not to be entered into unadvisedly or carelessly, but reverently, joyfully, and thoughtfully. In Matthew 19, four through six, Jesus responding to, to some people who are questioning him He says that marriage is instituted by God. Whoa. Can we go to the scripture up here? I missed the scripture in my notes. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's what Jesus said to those who were questioning him. See, marriage is instituted by God. It is a sacred covenant between a man and a woman and is meant to be lifelong. As God designed it, it is a covenant, not a contract. A contract seeks to reduce liability in a relationship. A covenant is quite the opposite. It is the mutual shouldering of liabilities for the good of the other from this day forward. Now to step out for a moment from the marriage officiating notes, I just want to hang out here on this idea that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. See, contracts can be weaponized, but covenants can't. In marriage, you are entering a covenant, not a contract. Covenant mindset is not about securing resources or services for my own well-being. 
Covenant mindset is also not a lifelong contract to perpetually deny your own interest altogether, once and all, forever and ever and ever and ever. It's not just about you getting what you want, and it's also not just about them getting what they want. Contracts are about personal responsibilities and outcomes. Covenants are built on mutuality. It's not contractual. It's mutual. It isn't purely about self-sacrifice, and it isn't purely about self-fulfillment. Rather, the biblical design of the covenant is about mutual sacrifice and mutual fulfillment. And this is why God gives such a narrow window where divorce is applicable. He gives the three A's, the three A's of why or how divorce might be applicable in his eyes. The first is adultery in Matthew 19, 9. The second is abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, 14 to 15. And the third is abuse, Exodus 21, 10 to 11. Those three are the only justifications God provides for divorce. And those three are an affront to the mutuality of the covenant. Those three are contractual concepts or realities that ultimately aim to weaponize the contract for their own benefit or the harm of the other. But that's not what covenants are about. Covenants are about mutuality. Only those three justify your exit from that mutuality from that mutual sacrifice and mutual fulfillment and seeking it wholeheartedly, continually. So let's jump back into the wedding ceremony notes here. And um, in most wedding ceremonies, I was given this concept and um, use it often. I give three realities of the marriage covenant. And those three realities are it is costly, it is personal, and it is permanent. So first, it is costly. It costs you something. It takes effort. It requires sacrifice. It demands vulnerability and humility. From mundane things to significant things, marriage is going to cost you something. And that, that is a part of why it's so valuable, why it is so beautiful to see a healthy, thriving marriage, especially one that has gone on for decades, right? Because it costs something. To make it that far with joy and delight in one another costs something, costs a lot. Like you all think of that cute old couple that you see like walking through the park holding hands and it just seems like, wow, they're just so in love. It's as if they're newlyweds, yet they've been married 50 years or whatever it is. That's not the result of perfect compatibility. It's not. It's not the result of perfectly wonderful, rosy, romanticized Disney love. It is the result of intentional and repeated mutual investment in godly love. Godly love, decisive love. The costly type described in 1 Corinthians 13 that is patient, that is kind, that is generous, humble, honoring, forgiving, even-tempered, truth-championing love. 
Love that protects, hopes, and perseveres. The kind of love that is costly. So, so costly, but so, so worth it. So worth it. If you want to be that old couple, pay the price. Because it's worth it. The second is that it's personal. There's no other marriage in all the world or all of humanity or all of history like the one you might be in or maybe the one you are in. That relationship is truly one of a kind and it has all the potential to be a masterpiece. The impact that this covenant will have on each of your hearts is immeasurable so long as you respect and admire it. God will use this to shape you and he will use it to call you to himself. That woman, that man will be a tool with which God cultivates your heart and brings forth the fruits of his spirit. And let's be real, cultivation is not a generic process, number one, and it's not an easy process. Anybody in here garden? Anyone? Few people, yeah. As you get older, maybe we'll all garden more. I don't know. (laughs) Seems like that happens. Pulling weeds tilling and amending the soil, constructing meaningful boundaries. This is work. And it is acutely personal. And it is a continual process. You don't just throw seed out and walk away. You have to tend to it. You have to take care of it. You don't just put a fence up around your carrots or something, I don't know, and leave it when it gets pushed down by the dog. You have to keep tending to it and reestablishing those boundaries and making them correct and adjusting them as necessary to protect that garden. If you do it, he'll bless it. And he doesn't bless it in some generic way. He blesses it specifically geared to you. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. Through each other, God will bless you, love you, and help you. Outside of Christ, there is no other person, thing, or relationship through which God will express his love to you more than this one, the marriage covenant. Outside of the Holy Spirit, there is no other person, thing, or relationship through which God will challenge, convict, and refine you more than marriage. It is costly, but it is also beautifully personal. And finally, it's permanent. It's meant for life. Only in death shall you be parted. Such a promise brings stability to life. Stability that is so significant that if your marriage is thriving, everything else in life could be crumbling, but you will go out into the world with confidence. And that is true, my friends. I've experienced it. I've seen it. It's stabilizing, just like the love of Christ is. The permanence of it provides a firm foundation so that you can navigate even the scariest of waters. Whatever life throws at you, in marriage, in the promise of forever, it brings forth a boldness and a confidence that is second only to salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the permanence of it that gives it its power for transformation and blessing. That's one reason it is so important to not even bring the word divorce to the party like Trish and Nate were talking about. Don't even utter that word jokingly. 
Because the moment it enters into the ether of your relationship, it begins eroding the foundation that gives the covenant its beauty and power to strengthen those within it. Marriage was instituted by God for the blessing and building up of humanity, for our good and our thriving and our flourishing. It is the foundation of the family and therefore the foundation of society at large, a picture of Christ's love for his people, the church, as described in Ephesians 5. Marriage is meant to reflect our relationship with Christ. That's what it's meant to do. That's what its purpose is. It reflects his relationship with his people, the church. That's us. It costs him something. It costs Jesus something to be with us. It costs him everything. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us all, dying on that cross 2,000 years ago that we might know him personally and be with him permanently, permanently. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all the blessings, all the benefits, all the joys that our broken and wayward lives longed for are satisfied. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the amazing relationship that each of us can find in him was forged by the sacrificial love of God. This is what marriage is meant to point to. It's what it's meant to point to. So it's what it's supposed to look like. Brian talked about that last week. He touched on that. To this very end, marriage ought to strive, to aim, to long for, to work towards, to magnify Christ, to display the gospel through your love, devotion, and sacrifice for each other, and to delight yourselves in each other in such a way that God delights in each of you because of how you reflect his love. Something that's been so meaningful to Amy and I is just this concept that God doesn't, I'm, it's, it's, it's almost like it's not even my love for Amy. It's his love for her, and he's just invited me in to participate in it, and vice versa, that we get the opportunity to love them with God's love, And that's a way that even when we don't feel like loving them, we recognize, I don't need to feel like loving them. My role here is to participate in God's love for them. And it's so freeing and it's so beautiful. It frees us to actually delight in one another, even when it's like, I don't really want to delight in that. Which that's the reality of marriage. It's going to happen at times. To magnify Christ. That's what it's supposed to strive for. That's what it's supposed to do. In the end, the best marriage that any of you could have is the one that makes the most of Jesus. And just as our perfect Savior reveals himself through it to us, these imperfect people, just as he reveals himself to us through marriage, which includes imperfect people, He does that. That's crazy. But he does it. He invites us to participate in that. God has chosen marriage with its union of two imperfect people to reflect his perfect, always and forever love. So, how do we keep that train on the tracks? What training is there that could equip us to approach and navigate the covenant of marriage and avoid the threats and vulnerabilities we bring with us into it? I have a few points. We're going to run through them. The first is this. Embrace the seasons. Embrace the seasons. 
Something I've heard said in a variety of ways by multiple pastors and marriage researchers goes something like this. Every seven-ish years, seven-ish, scientific, you're in a different marriage. Every seven-ish years, you're in a different marriage because you both have changed. Every seven-ish years, you are in a different marriage than the one you had previously been in, even though you are still married to the same person. See, we are slaves to change. The saying, uh, like, never change because you're perfect just as you are. It's a great platitude. It's a great platitude, but it's all it is because change is inevitable. You will have big tectonic life events happen throughout the decades of your marriage, like having a child. That's a big deal, really big deal. It changes a lot of things. Losing a parent or loved one, massive. And these things will impact you and change you along the way. You'll have job changes or move to a new place and face new challenges, have different weaknesses revealed along the way, and you'll wound one another along the way. And that will change you. You may be wounded by outside forces along the way, like a friend, a business partner, a parent, whatever it might be, and that will unsettle you and change you and thus change the dynamics of your marriage. There's so much change that will happen along the way that every seven-ish years, expect your marriage to look different than it ever was before. Expect your spouse and yourself to be different as the years go by. That may sound super scary to some of you. You may be like, what? Are you kidding me? Well, then how the heck do I choose a spouse if they're just gonna change seven years down the road and seven years after that change again? That may be terrifying to you. That might be the most frightening thing you've heard all day, (laughs) maybe. That the person you will marry will change along the way. You're like, so how can I be sure? How can I be sure I'm marrying the right person? Well, it's like the bears. Take the lessons from the training and adapt it to every new situation, and you'll be fine. And by the way, the core of the training, it's scripture. And the TA is the Holy Spirit. Bring them both, because you'll need them. But if you do, you'll be fine. The thing that is probably most upsetting for those who hear this idea of change is that it means we have to trust God and trust the other person to trust God as well. And that's the crux of it. That's the crux of the answer. Seek a person who shows you that they trust and obey God, and you'll be fine. Seek a person who shows you that, not just tells you it, but shows you it. Also, I think it's really important, really, really important for us to reframe the idea of change as always bad. It's not always bad. It's not always bad. Every seven-ish years, your marriage will look different, and that can be an encouragement and a hopeful thing. Because change does not need to be changed for the worse. It can be changed for the better. We are called to be a people of hope. And that certainly includes hopefulness for our marriages. 
Uh, there's research on this that is very convincing. In a 2002 study out of the University of Chicago, whose findings have been validated by other studies throughout the years, found that two-thirds of unhappy marriages who stayed together were happy five years later. They also found that those individuals who divorced in that same span on average were less likely to be happy than those who stayed together. Stick with it. Wait till spring comes again. Pursue the marriage and be patient and faithful while you weather the storm with the hope that it will pass and you'll be better off because of it. You'll both be better off because of it. Pick up the things we've talked about over the course of the series. Pick up the things I'm talking about tonight and implement them to the best of your ability and wait patiently for the fruitful change that God can bring about through it. Don't give up. Don't back out. Embrace the seasons. You know, Amy and I um, have been married about eight years, eight years in October, so not quite. And uh, that's not really all that long in the span of things. Um, yeah, thanks. All right. <laughs> Sophie. Yeah. <laughs> the lone clapper. Oh, should I not? Oh, okay. Thank you, Sophie. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Now she's embarrassed. I love you. Um, been married eight years. That's not really uh, all that long, but I, I have already seen this reality of seasons play out in my marriage. Despondence, wounding, frustration, misunderstanding, bitterness, helplessness. Amy and I have known these things in our marriage. We have weathered a season of a lot of missed high fives, a lot of missed high fives. And that's like a phrase, like a term that Amy and I have adopted, and I love it. Um, and it relates to how we communicate, how we connect. And I think you'll all get it. You, you know, like a high five, like a good high five, when you're like walking down a hallway and you're like walking, you're strutting, you know, and like you don't even talk about it, but the other person coming the other way just sort of like puts it up as you walk in, and you just like solid connect, you know, the timing's just right, like all the adjustments you're making along the way, all the adjustments they're making just like work in perfect concert, and you just connect with this like beautiful slap and like a perfect amount of sting, and maybe if you're really into it, like if you're passing each other, you're just like, boom, and you just think, I'm going for it, and you go for the follow-through, and you find out they did too, and you're like, oh my, you know, and you can't help but like... No words were said, but you just can't help but look back and go like, oh, yeah. That's right. I see you. You see me? We're good, man. You know what I'm talking about? That's a good high five. A missed high five, on the other hand, we also all understand. We've all been there. We've all experienced it. When you're walking down that same hallway and you're like, oh, yeah, and you go up and you just like fully whiff. Or you like glance off the heel and it's all awkward. Or maybe you're going like side five and they're like thinking handshake, but you don't know until just about your hands connect. And then it's this like weird like grab, but you're trying to pop it out. And it's like, it's all weird. You know what I'm talking about? It's a missed high five. It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. And when you have missed high fives, what usually happens is somebody, you know, you glance off and one of you is like, oh, come, come on, let's do it again. Let's do it again, right? You're like, let's try that again. 
And you go for it, and maybe sometimes you connect right after that. You like line it up elbow to elbow, whatever, and you're like, okay, cool. And you can walk away, and you're good. But other times you miss again. And then you miss another time, and eventually one of you is like, I'm, it's okay, we're all right. We're not, this isn't going to work out. And you walk away. You're like, I'm done, you know? And it's okay, but it's not ideal, and you feel a little weird about it. And then, but the real issue, the real struggle is the next time you see them, and you're like walking, passing, and the thought goes like, I, sh- I should go for this high five. Let's redeem something here. Let's make it happen. And so you're like, maybe not, though, because that didn't go so well. <laughs> right? And you start getting in your own head. You start playing back what happened in the past. And you're just like, not sure what to do. Like the next time you see them, you start second guessing, should I go for it? And you start making adjustments based not on what you see in the moment, but based on what you assume or expect to see, based on your negative past experiences. Right? And so you're making adjustments not on what they're actually doing, but on like you're going for it. And you're like, last time I went too fast and they went slow, so I'm going to go slower this time. But the problem is they may be thinking the opposite. And so they try and go fast. And then you're like in this weird spot again. And then it's awkward. But now it's building on the last time you tried to high five. And you're like, maybe we shouldn't try again. And it gets harder. The missed high fives multiply and it builds up. Same can be seen in communication, in certain areas of relationship where you're just not connecting. You're just not connecting, and it adds insecurity, it adds confusion, frustration, and it's just hard. It's just hard. And the missed high fives add up. Amy and I have had a season of this. And I say a season because it wasn't a moment or a month, but it's been a few years of connecting on high fives in some areas and really connecting, and it's great. But then there's these few areas where we're just really missing it. We just keep missing it. And both of us being frustrated by that, being wounded by it, not sure how to fix it. And when you try it again, it doesn't always make you feel better. But we kept trying. We kept trying. We kept seeking out one another over the course of time and knew neither one of us was going to give up on this in the long run. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but I burped. <laughs> TMI? Did you hear it? No? Okay, yeah. It happened. Yeah. <laughs> You're clapping for that? Cool, man. Thanks, Sean. I see you. You started that. like I said this past year has been um, well sorry like I said that's Amy and I have had a season of missed high fives in specific areas where it's just like it's just been really hard it's just been really hard but this past year this past year has been a year of restoring hope and peace in certain areas of our relationship of like slowing down the high five and seeing what alignments or misalignments have played into it. Of what past experiences have altered how we go about it and need to be corrected or need to be redeemed. Of acknowledging and repenting of what the things that I have brought into it. Whether it's me or her, the things we both brought into this. And the trend is reversing. 
See, having been through it, being in it, we're, we, we now understand the seasons. And when we think of future Amy and Brian, we have the hope that when there is a divide between us, that we don't know how to overcome or seems to be insurmountable, we can remember that we are what we are experiencing right now, which is the realignment and just getting some solid high fives in areas that we didn't have high fives, good high fives in for a while. Our God was not done. Our God brought us together for a reason, and he is in the business of finishing what he starts, and we believed him. He wasn't done, and neither were we. We can weather the tiresome seasons full of hope that they are making us stronger and wiser and refining us for the glory of Christ and the thriving of our marriage no matter how long those seasons might last. The seasons of marriage will include hard ones. It will. And side note here, like, you will have this with any person and every person you will have this with. So unless we're talking about one of the three A's, adultery, abuse, or abandonment, divorce is an illusion. That next person, that next relationship will have the same prospects for ups and downs as the last one. So you're better off staying the course with the one you've got. The one you committed to do that with in the first place. So, embrace the seasons. Next, be a student of the other. Be a student of the other. How well do you know your partner's inner psychological world, his or her history, worries, stresses, joys, their hopes? Be a student of the other person. As stated earlier, your spouse is going to change along the way, so don't settle for the answers or awareness you had of them three, 10, 30 years ago. Don't settle for that. Continue to learn about them, learn from them, take an interest in them, and invest yourself in knowing them. It will pay off. Be a student of them. Next, share fondness and admiration. And this one, this one is the antidote to contempt. Share fondness and admiration. Focus on what about them you are affectionate about. about. What do you respect about them? When, when they have served you, or when have they served you, or when have they cared for you? How have they forgiven you or held their tongue for you? What have they done to show their love for you or respect you? Like, what do you admire about how they carry themselves? What do you admire about how they interact with others or engage with God? Reflect upon and remember these things. It will strengthen fondness and admiration. Make a habit of this so that, so that you're already in the practice of it. You're already in the habit of it when the tough or conflicting season comes your way. Make a habit of being remembering and pursuing and being intentional about recognizing and reflecting on the things that you can be fond of them of and the things that you admire in them because when the missed high fives come, it'll help. It'll help you return again to being like, let's do this again because I know we can. And I think you're really good at high fives. And maybe this isn't all your fault because look, you're good at this in other places. So let's do this again. And you go for it again because you think well of them. It's important. And notice here it says share. Share it. Express fondness and admiration to your spouse. 
Write a letter. Leave a sticky note on the mirror. Also, make a habit of expressing fondness and admiration about them to others. That's important, too. Make a habit of that. Do it continually. Don't speak ill of them. Speak well of them continually. Next, pursue a positive perspective on repairs. The presence of a positive approach to problem solving and the success of repair attempts is so meaningful. That connection between those two things is so meaningful. When they seek to reconcile or repair a wound or conflict between you, don't sabotage it. Don't sabotage it out of your own spite or pride. This this alone is a significant stumbling block to many happy marriages. If they make an effort to repair, even if it's clumsy, believe the best in their attempt. Extend grace for the imperfection of it. Engage with it. Don't sabotage it. Next, manage conflict. We say manage. I say manage conflict rather than resolve conflict. Because uh, relational conflict is natural. It's natural and it is functional. It actually has positive aspects. I say manage conflict also because we need to understand that there is a critical difference in handling perpetual problems and solvable problems. Not every problem is solvable. A perpetual problem. A perpetual problem is like when she's an extrovert and he's an introvert. These are problems that we manage not ones that get solved. There's a tension there that will be present because it's a part of your individual makeup, but it can be managed. It can be managed. And practice is found that meet your needs, meet your needs. Maybe not your wants, but they meet both of your needs. Often, these sorts of problems, the ones that need to be managed, are the shadow sides of the strengths, the differences between you that actually draws you to them. So there's perpetual problems, ones that need to be managed, and then there are problems that need to be solved. And there's a variety of these. These are the, We tend towards wanting every problem to be like this. So, you know, it's, a lot of them are simple. A lot of problems are solvable. Like, you know, who's going to take point on financial stuff? Who's doing the taxes this year? That's solvable. You can, you can solve that one. Okay, last one here. Unite around shared meaning. This is the last one. Band, actually, if you want to make your way up, we'll finish here. Unite around shared meaning. The purpose and meaning of marriage, it is bigger than you. It is not absent of you, but it is bigger than you. There is meaning, there is purpose, and life lived unto that purpose. A marriage lived into its purpose will bond and unite you for the long haul like nothing else. We've said it before, but I'll say it again. In finding a spouse, there should be two non-negotiables. Two. Agreement and unity between you about the purpose and meaning of life. That's number one. If you follow Jesus then that would be something along the lines of delighting in and glorifying God with every breath and every action or making disciples who live and love like Jesus, which of course implies that you have to be a disciple who lives and loves like Jesus. 
Be united on this, and not just in words, but do, do you see it? Do you see it in the patterns of their life? Do you see it in their interactions with their friends and family? Do you see it within your own relationship? So that's number one. The second non-negotiable is be united in your understanding of the meaning and purpose of marriage. So be united in your understanding and pursuit of the meaning and purpose of life and be united in your understanding and pursuit of the meaning and purpose of marriage. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel. It's meant to point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way. For his self-sacrificial love for us, the church. There's also the Holy Spirit and the refining and sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does. It's not comfortable, it's often painful, but it's absolutely in every way for our good. Marriage is a reflection of that covenant God made with us to never leave us nor forsake us. The gospel is costly. The gospel was personal and the gospel message is permanent and so our understanding of the meaning of marriage should incorporate those things as well. That it is costly, that it is personal, and that it is permanent. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this evening. I thank you for the opportunity to talk on this subject. And then, Lord, I pray that it would be fruitful. In the lives of those who are now married, maybe in this moment, those who have struggles. Lord, I pray it would be fruitful in the lives of those who are married in what's to come for them. I pray it'd be fruitful in the lives of those who are unmarried in what's to come for them. Lord, would you, would this all be a part of your training, equipping them to pursue that which you love, to respect it, to adore it, and to enjoy it wholeheartedly. We thank you, Lord. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen.